You're listening to the Irish Times Roisin Meets podcast. My guest today is one of those very familiar faces and not just because of his long career with Boyzone. You've seen him in plenty of other TV roles, including Fair City and Coronation Street and for a blink and you'll miss it moment or two in Love Hate. And I should also mention that with his wife Lisa, he's in that very select group who took away a crystal carriage clock when he was victorious in Celebrity Mr and Mrs. These days it can be found every evening in the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin where he's starring in the Druid Theatre production of John B. Keane's Big Maggie. You are very welcome to the show, Keith Duffy. My God, that was some introduction. Well, you know, I have to throw it on. I hate the way you have to say you blink and you miss it in love. I know, sorry. That wasn't my fault. No, you know, I was supposed to have a much bigger part. Yeah, because of the uh, the Irish public they didn't like my familiar face well I liked your show. familiar face and I wanted you to be in much more of it so well, you see what happened what actually happened go was, on tell us we shot that eight months before I, I was on screen and we kept it quiet we weren't telling anybody who was on we didn't want people to have a preconceived idea of how I was going to be I put on uh, a, a stone of muscle 14 pounds of muscle and um, I trained very hard for three months I shaved my head and I looked like a complete thug and, you know, I really kind of got involved yeah. in, in, in you know, betraying a bodybuilder that sold cocaine. You were doing a Daniel Day-Lewis on it. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't quite method. Um, I mean, I didn't do cocaine. Um, but, uh, so you say. So I say, yeah, but I have to say that, don't I? Anyway, um, RTE had, there, there was a drop. There was a drop in viewing figures the week before my character arrived. Having to have keeping it quiet for eight months. And then they released it thinking it would be a great promotion for the show. But unfortunately, it went the opposite way. And uh, and the kind of the love-hate kind of addicts just went, we don't like it. He's too familiar. This is a real story. It's not fiction. You know, this is documentary. We can't have a minute because then we have to realise that it's fiction, you know. So it just didn't work. Because it was actually an introduction of the character so that in Series 5 it would be a very dominant character. But they went a different way. Was that really disappointing? I was, yeah. Yeah, it was disappointing. Because, um, you know, when you're, when you're 18, 19 in a boy band, back in the early 90s, it wasn't very cool, you know. Um, other guys of our age would, would uh, give us a, a rough enough time with slagging, you know, walking down the street, you get called all sorts of names and one thing and another. Um, which is kind of ironic when you look when I'm looking back on it now, because really, you know, they were sitting on the street corner shouting abuse at me, whereas, you know, I disappear for three months and maybe travel to 24, 25 different countries, you know, experience so many different cultures. And just the experience in itself is f- phenomenal. And then coming home and they're still on the same street corner, still calling me names, you know, it's like, really? You know, there's a bit of jealousy there. Yeah. But, you know, when you're that age, it does cause an insecurity, you know, you, you, you do think that people that generally don't like it and it, and it's hard to deal with so and then obviously going into Coronation Street I was such a happy-go-lucky character and Corrie and I was in there for so many years to get a part in something like Love Hate which was which was gritty and the character was gritty and and you know like I say a bodybuilder and I just kind of thought this is cool you know this is a cool role this is a cool, cool thing to be part of and like unfortunately uh Nobody else did. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that, um, you know, on the one hand, right, you're going around the world and people are loving you and you're getting that kind of adoration that most people will never experience mm. in their lives. On the other hand, you're coming home and I know this is quite a while ago now when this would have been happening, but you're getting that kind of derision and the kind of you're not getting that peer respect that you might yes. like. But it's interesting that even though you're getting all the adoration, that that stuff can actually get to you because it sounds like it really did. Well, it's an Irish trait, you know. If if like if you go onto your social media and you have like 30 people there complimenting what you're wearing on a photograph that you've uploaded, and then you have one person going, "That's disgusting." Did you get dressed in the dark? Do you know what I mean? We always dwell on the negative. We always 
tend to not see the 30 compliments, we just see the one insult. Yeah, well, and, I have to say, at the moment, you're looking exceptionally well. I wish this was a video. You have a beautiful <laughs> suit on. I don't know if it's Louis Copeland or who it is. But no, it's, it's not Louis. Louis. I've, I have done Louis before. It's actually, um, it's McGee. Okay, it's, it's gorgeous. McGee. Anyway. McGee. Yes, it's, it's actually new. I was wearing it in a photo shoot earlier on, and I decided to grace you beautiful ladies with my nice suit. <laughs> So there you go. We really appreciate it. But I'm um, going back to that. So how long are you over that stuff now? Or yeah, are you yeah. still a Look, kind of you know what? I, my son is my takes... son is older now than I was yeah. then. Do you know? Um, I'm I'm the wrong side of forty now and and uh, hitting towards or the, the right 50. side. You never like experience. Well, the, the wrong or the right side. Yeah, I don't know. It depends on who you are, I suppose. Um, I'm very kind of satisfied in my life. You know, I'm very happy. I'm very lucky. I have a, a, a great wife and, and two beautiful children. I'm very secure in my environment at home. And, and I suppose I've learned how to love myself and not um, apologize for my success, um, which is a huge thing. I've, I've also realized in later years that I'm actually quite sensitive, which is something that I tried to fight against for years and tried to disguise by being loud and trying to be funny, which didn't always work. Um, it was like a, a weight off my shoulders when I actually turned around to my family one day and said, you know what, I'm actually a sensitive person. Um, uh, by which time the, the three of them in the house looked at me and said, no shit, Sherlock. You know what I mean? It was obviously a very well-known fact. Um, but the insecurities that, um, you know, being in a boy band in the early 90s brought on did kind of hang around for quite a while, you know? And when the band did decide to take a break, which ultimately went into a six or seven year break, um, trying, to, trying to kind of fit back into society, I remember it being a very difficult thing to do. Um, you go into a, a pub, you know, you're back living in Ireland again, you're not traveling as much. You go socializing with your friends, you go into a pub. You don't know if the people in the pub, they're going to recognize you, but you don't know if they're gonna to want to buy you a pint or to give you a dig. You know, and, and they probably were just happy to buy a pint, but it's the insecurity that the slagging kind of brought on uh, would allow you to kind of think negative, you know. I'd say there's a lot of men uh, listening and just people who would hear you talk like that who would recognise that in themselves because sensitivity for so long has been something that hasn't been viewed as a male trait, unfortunately, because yeah. it's a bit ridiculous because it's a human trait and yes. it's not a gender-based well, trait. Well, you know, it's our generation as well. I mean, the generation before us, like my father and, and, and his father, they, they were different men. There wasn't, there wasn't time to be sensitive then. You had to provide for your family. The, the word didn't you know? come into the lexicon. No, like, no, you didn't have there. that. It's a, it's, a, it's a first world problem. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's certainly a first world problem. Um, but like if you dri drive down past the Phoenix Park, which I did a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, um, you see there's the playground there beside the, the, um, the gates of the Phoenix Park. Um, park um, what they call it Park, park Gate, Gate Street. Street yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a big um, playground there for kids. And uh, there was literally just gangs of men and their kids. You know, there was no women. There was men pushing their pram with their kids in them. Like, I don't think my dad ever pushed the pram. I don't think men did push prams in the previous generation. Do you know what I mean? So men are becoming very much in touch with their feminine side. Yeah, it's and, true. Uh, and, far and be it for me to be different. No, you are very much ahead <laughs> of the curve on that. But I think it is something that even in recent years in this country that, you know, when we talk about mental health and we talk about men, especially in that area, that's often something that men are not necessarily feeling they could express themselves in the real way that they wanted to be. Like you just said, that you would be louder. And what other ways did you kind of try to avoid that sensitive side of yourself? Well, I tried to be funny. I tried to kill the pauses you know I tried to be loud um, and, and I was actually quite shy but I disguised that by being you know over what, what looked over co probably cocky um, which was which was a front but unfortunately people only know what you give them 
So that might have been in a lot of the areas where boys are starting off when we would be doing the likes of interviews like this or whatever, you would try to disguise your, your shyness or whatever, or your insecurities by being loud and maybe obnoxious. And I didn't realise that at the time I wasn't clever enough. And with the other, and now you're much cleverer. And with the other lads, <laughs> life does kind that of, to you. Well, yeah, would the other lads have kind of recognised that, or were they all doing their own thing, their own versions of that? I'm sure they're all ways? doing their own versions of that. Yeah. You know, and if if you're good enough at putting a front on, sometimes the front becomes the front. Do you know what I mean? And that becomes the person. Um, whereas I always kind of had a different front than who I am. You know. Yeah. Well, speaking of front, I think you have to have a lot in a funny way um, to stand up on a stage night after night doing what you're doing at the moment, which is with Druid Theatre, one of the most respected theatre companies in the world. And I, I think it's I just love when people challenge themselves, you know, and I think you have really done that with your work in theatre at the moment. What was yeah. it like, though? Say, I know you did it three years ago and now you're coming back and it's been extended, which is fantastic till the 12th of March. What was it like when you first, first of all, got the gig and then the idea? Was there kind of a certain sickness almost in your stomach to think oh, what if I completely fail at this of course I mean to be honest this is the one gig that terrifies me um, theatre work it terrifies me but it's also my passion it's, all, it's also the one job that I, that I prefer than, than any other it's my favourite um, you can't just go into performing uh, a show on, on a theatre stage as an actor you have to have done the groundwork you have to have kind of earned your stripes and, and you don't want to be that exposed if you don't have the ability or the confidence or the experience to be able to pull it off. Um, I thought, like most people do, you ha coming out of the entertainment business when you've been on stage for a long time, I, I fancied being an actor, but I didn't really know what that entailed. You know, I thought it was just give me some lines and I'll pretend to be that person. But there's an awful lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realise that. And when I suppose when I did realise that was after the second or third uh, episode of Coronation Street back in 2002. Um, I remember looking back at the first episodes I shot and I thought I was terrible. I thought it was completely unbelievable, you know. Um, I didn't believe a word out of my mouth. Um, but I got progressively better very, very quickly. You know, you, you sink or swim in, in a soap opera like that because they're because working so fast. they're not so going to keep you on, are they? No, they, 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 don't, they don't carry dead weight. If you're no good, they see it, you're gone. You know, you're working at a very fast pace. You can't, you're, you're, you know, you're given maybe five to ten episodes of scripts. They don't shoot in sequence. So you could be shooting up to five eps at the same time. Different scenes coming from a fighting scene, maybe to a, a romantic scene, to a stress scene or whatever. And they don't shoot in sequence. So you can only learn the lines the night before because you can't learn them two weeks ahead because you know you're not shooting in sequence and it's impossible so looking back and I, I went to an acting coach every every time I got a new script I went to an acting coach in my own time I paid for it myself and it was a way of getting somebody else's opinion on what I'm doing and then maybe suggesting I try it differently and trying and finding new ways to do something yeah. you know there's a million ways to skin a cat and it's you know with acting different actors can bring a different layer to characters as such so um it was it was in the curry days that i realized there was an awful lot more to acting than just kind of saying <laughs> okay. words yeah and like i ended up being a curry on and off for 10 years it's amazing isn't it like, yeah you're such a loved character as well yeah it was great particularly I mean, by my mother people, people I say you know i only saw <laughs> i only signed a three-month contract and i ended up saying on yeah. and off for 10 years a lot of people say that i did that because i got good very quickly and they loved the character like you just said yeah. and my dad says they were waiting on me to get good that's what that's, what, <laughs> that's why i was there for just 10 years just your dad that's great yeah um so going from that then into theater my first theater gig was uh, 
a show called Dandelions, which uh, Fiona Looney wrote. And that was with Paulie McGlynn, Deirdre O'Kane and Don Bradfield. And that was my first time to be in a theatre hall to do a play, not, not to be singing with the lads. And this, this whole thing of theatre, no microphones, projection, you know. And when you're trying to, excuse me, when you're trying to be sincere with somebody in a flirtatious scene, let's say, you know, the sincerity can be taken away with volume, with projection. And it's a very difficult thing because it feels cringy, it feels wrong. You're standing on the stage, like I am at the moment in Big Maggie, and there's certain lines that have to be delivered, but you have to make sure the people in the gods right up the top of the back can hear what you're saying, but you're trying to be sincere. And it feels the sincerity is going out of it because of the volume. So, and then, you, like I say, you feel cringeworthy. So that's all experience. You have to be able to understand and that to be able to do that. did you get a lot of help from your fellow actors and people who, or was there other people who thought, who is he? Who does he think he is going in here doing this? Well, there was, always, there, there was a lot of that at the start. When I, when I first went to the Coronation Street, there was, there was um, a few members of the, the cast that weren't overly nice. They weren't very friendly. And, you know, I wasn't silly. I kind of thought the idea was this guy, singer, he's coming in here taking an actor's job who's gone four years to drama school and who does he think he is? He just wants to be famous. And far from it. I had a great passion for being on stage. I was never a professional actor, I was, but I did plenty of amateur dramatics as a kid. So, you know, it was always something that I really wanted to do. And I think because I dedicated so much time to it then, to, to, get, to getting better, um, those, those guys, I won those guys, those actors over eventually. Um, but like, I'm, I'm acting now, what is it, 2016? Like, I'm professionally acting now in over 16 years. Yeah. And it's still sometimes in jobs you get, because Boyzone was so successful and I've got such a familiar face from Boyzone, yeah. people's first reaction is, oh, he was in Boyzone, he thinks he can act. You know, I've been acting longer than I was ever in Boys Only. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Do you know what I mean? Talk to me about Big Maggie. So this character is kind of a womaniser. Well, get this part. Going back, sorry, going back to your question, because as as we we did kind of say earlier on, I do talk a lot. (laughs) You do talk a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's good on a podcast, though. Maureen Hughes was casting Big Maggie initially back in 2011, um, which is nearly four or five years ago. Um, and uh, they, they, Gary Hines, obviously, they, our director, um, herself and Maureen auditioned me in the Westbury. Um, and it wasn't really an audition, it was more of a kind of a tea and scones me- meeting type thing. Yeah. And, um, and then Maureen rang me later and said, Gary liked you and she wants to hire you to, to, to be in this um, play, which I loved John B. Keane's work. Um, I always just took it for granted that I'd get commercial acting work like Coronation Street and things like that. But uh, a production company such as Druid, like you said earlier, like one of the most respected production companies in the world. Gary Hines, the only kind of female Tony winner from Ireland, uh, director. Um, I mean, it's a big thing. It's, gr- it's a great thing to have on your CV as an actor. So for them to take the chance on me back then, I was blown away. And I was very, very, very scared. I mean, I didn't know, <laughs> you know, I was wondering, am I good enough? Can I do this? You know, um, this whole projection. When we were going to, around every single theatre in Ireland, you know, so I had to make sure I got it right. And uh, Gary was brilliant with me, you know, yeah. and, and got the best out of me. And the other actors were brilliant too. And Ashling O'Sullivan is a wonderful actor, great to work with on stage, like really, really gets the best out of you um, and gives you something to work with. Uh, so it was terrifying. And then for it to come back again, uh, and they called me up before Christmas and said, would you be interested in coming back and doing Big Maggie for, for three weeks in the Gaiety? 
Um, I said, yeah, my God. I said, is Ashton coming back? And John Olihan, and they said, yeah, they're coming back. And obviously Charlie Murphy was in it back then and Sarah Green, yeah. who were great pals of mine. And I said, is Sarah and Charlie? Well, the offer is out to them, but I think they're busy, they can't do it. So I was a bit disappointed with that. But um, coming back to do it again in the gate, he was brilliant. But yeah. again, I have to say, the opening night, the first preview, I was terrified. I mean, terrified. And that's why I love this gig, because it still absolutely scares the yeah. crap out of me. And then when you come off stage, you feel energised, your adrenaline is flowing, you're hyper, you know, you, you, you can't go home, you have to go out and have a pint, you know, <laughs> just to calm down. And that's what I love about it, it's the excitement, you know? Yeah. I, I, like, if I, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have this in my life, you know? Okay, and you know, it's a, on the leaving cert, Big Maggie, now, so you've yes. got a lot of people, teenagers... Which is interesting. Going, yeah, what's that like? It's interesting. They come predominantly to the matinee shows on a Wednesday and a Saturday. Um, so in the, we've we've had full houses every night. It's been the, the, the response has been great. Standing ovations every night, like it's great to see. If you don't have a standing ovation, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But it makes it a little bit sweeter when you yeah. do. Um, so then, and obviously a theatre audience, and it's a cleverly written play. So you have to listen, and you have to have a little bit of a brain to understand what John B. Keane was trying to do. And if you get that, we know where the laughs are supposed to be. Yeah. So we know when we have a clever audience in because they're ra laughing in the right place. Um, and I'm not saying the people that don't are not clever, but you have to listen. <laughs> yeah. um, in the matinee show, you've got school kids coming in that are probably in about 16, 17 years of age. Uh, they're in fifth year on the first year studying for the Leaving Cert because it was just brought into the yeah. Leaving Cert curriculum this year. Uh, and they get a, a day off school to come to, to the theatre, you know. And they, they get, I think, they're scared or they're embarrassed of the adult content of the show, the suggestive talk. You know, there's snogging and stuff on stage. <laughs> and you can kind of feel the embarrassment of them. So to, to disguise the embarrassment, what we were talking about earlier on, they'll shout obscenities at the stage and they'll wolf whistle <laughs> and various things which you don't expect in theatre. And it can be quite off-putting. And usually it's my character that gets this, you know, right. because I'm, I kind of, I snog one of the daughters and then I get seduced and I snog Big Maggie. And um, some of the things that get shouted on the stage is, is crazy. Um, one thing in particular, which I don't hope you don't mind me saying. No, we don't mind anything on this podcast. It's fine. All right, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm there, and myself and Ashley are kind of snogging, and then we break away, and then we go in for another snog. And then this voice from the audience went, go on, Keto, stick it in her. Oh, like, I just and did, you, did he did, just really say and that? Did you just carry on? You're, you're, you're such a professional kind of, now that We you looked didn't. at each other and we kind of <laughs> laughed with our eyes, but the, the scene allowed us to have a little bit of expression there, so we got away with it, you know, but it was just Well, bizarre. it's great that your craft, and you obviously work very hard on it, and you're, um, you know, you've moved on to such a degree from when you maybe started out in incarnation. It's, it's confidence. It's in, in every, yeah. everything you do in life. It's experience and confidence. Mm. The more you do something, the better you become at it. You know, or, or if you don't get better at it, you should give it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, what I think it was, it was Einstein said, the first sign of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting same, a different result. Yeah, exactly. um, you have to progress. You have to get better. And I think you do with that. You do that like what you do, what I do. You do that with experience. Yeah. Um, and I'm very lucky. My son is 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 a, a budding actor, and um, he's uh, he's very serious about it. So he he would help me get off book, learn my lines, and uh, he he'd rehearse with me, and he doesn't let me away with anything. You know. I was going to ask you about parenting, actually, just on that thing of getting better at something or getting more confident. How would you say you are as a dad now? Um, I mean, obviously they're older. You've got a 16-year-old daughter, Mia, yes. and then you've got uh, Jay, who's 20. Yeah. So how are you as a dad? Are you a kind of a strict dad? Are you no, buddy? Are no, you friends? No, I'm, I'm a friend, yeah. yeah. Because, 
My job and my career took me away from home a lot when they were younger. Lisa had to be the hand of the law, and um, and and she and she still is. I'm like her bold child. Like it's like she has three kids, not two. And um, me and the kid, I just have the crack with the kids. We just have fun together, you know. Myself and my son have great fun. He comes out on nights out with me, and um, you know. My wife doesn't give out to me when he's with me. You know, even if you come home really late. If Jay's with me, I get off. So I like him when he comes out with me. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, as a parent, when you become a parent, you're doing it for the first time. So you kind of have to, you have to kind of learn as you go. I'm very lucky. Both of the kids are very, very, very well behaved. Good guys, you know. Jay's not a big party man. He doesn't drink. He's 20, but he doesn't really take a drink. Maybe four times a year he might have a few drinks, but he's not into it. So, which is great because he drives and he's like my taxi. Because <laughs> I, I do, I do enjoy a drink. Sounds great. Um, well, do you, Keith? Really? Oh, now and again. <laughs> um, I was off to drink for January. Now I don't drive January. Fair play to yeah, you. yeah, whole month. Well done. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of find my way. I, I, I respect my children, and I, I give them the, you know, the respect to make good decisions. You know, that's all we can do is kind of guide our kids in the right direction, help them, you know, reach their dreams if we can and hope that we've given them a good foundation of love and affection and guidance that they can make the right decisions in life. You and know? people already know you for your work with Irish Autism Action as well, mm. which you did such massive stuff with. I think you helped raise about almost 8 million euro or something like that over the yeah, years. Maybe it's like more that. now. But it's huge. It's a huge achievement. And obviously your own daughter has autism. And she's she's six, 16, is that right? She's 16 yeah. on the 11th of March. And how's she doing? She's wonderful. She's one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. Her, 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 um, her personality, her sense of humour, her kindness. She's just a, she's a real kind soul. She's just a real soft, kind soul. And uh, she's, great, she's great to be around. She, makes, she brings out the best in people, you know. And she's doing very, very well. I mean, academically, she's flying. She's in peer equal school. And uh, she obviously was in, main, she was in um, special needs for five or six years. Uh, but she's flying in mainstream school now. She's doing very well in her junior cert, and she's just a ball of fun. From the first thing in the morning, she she her body her body is like a body clock. Like she has a body clock. She <laughs> she's she's awake seven ten past seven every morning. She's in bed by nine half nine at night, and when she from the time she gets up to the time she goes to bed. Excuse me. She's singing and dancing. She's singing like nobody's listening, and she's dancing like nobody's watching. That's what you need to do and, in life, um, isn't it? Yeah, and she's just brilliant. Oh, that's great. And what has she brought out in you, do you think, Keith, or having that? Because obviously there's challenges there and it's difficult, or it's different to, to what um, maybe other people who haven't got those special needs have in their lives. Yeah, it's, it was a very difficult time um, when Mia was diagnosed. I mean, first of all, getting a diagnosis was, was practically impossible. Um, and then when she was diagnosed, trying to figure out what we do next and trying to understand what autism was initially. Um, myself and my wife went in different directions. Lisa got very upset, obviously. I was very upset, but I didn't want to get... I, I got very frustrated because there didn't seem to be anything out there that I needed. Everybody's telling me what I needed, but there was no services available to us. So that was very frustrating. So that's why I started fundraising and trying to create awareness and getting talking to other families in the same position and sharing stories and trying to figure out how we can help. And, um, and we provided a form of education uh, in a school called Applied Behavioural Analysis, ABA, one-to-one -one teaching, and uh, Mia responded 
amazingly well, uh, like a mini miracle, really. And she she completely came out of herself and, and joined our world, if you like. Was and, uh, was it frustrating too, as well, to feel that you're in your country and that you're having to fight so much, uh, and you personally, yeah. you know, putting yourself out there, and 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 that was what you had to do just well, to get it, your it, child's it, sort of it, needs recognised. It must have been a little bit kind of oh, sick was. making, I would imagine. It was very frustrating and and soul destroying, and I was very angry. Um, but we did manage to get done what needed to be done. It, it's still not perfect. There's still a lot of waiting lists of children that need appropriate okay. education and, and they're not being provided by the state. Um, the state have moved somewhat, but we had to do most of the work ourselves and then they joined forces after the work was done. The problem with putting in new legislation for children like that is that most of the ministers or the TDs or whatever, they're only in office for four years. So if it's not going to happen within their term, they're not interested in helping, you know? And that's the problem. They can't see the bigger picture. They can only see the small picture. Does that and frustrate you? Because I suppose, you know, you'd, you'd like to think, and that's a very naive view, that people would get into that business, the business of politics, to, to change things and to make the country better and things better. But you, you obviously have more of a cynical view of it now, having seen... I don't the, like the to think of a cynical view of it. I think I, a realistic view. A realistic suppose, view yeah. on it, you know? I mean, there's only so much anybody can do. Um, but do it. You know, people don't do what they can do, you know. Like, I've started up, I stepped down as patron of Irish Autism Action um, last year because I get letters and emails all the time from different charities that, I'm, that touch my heart and I'd like to help. Um, as a result, I'm working with a charity called the Cleaner Foundation in Limerick this year. And we've, we've bought an Easter ball in Limerick coming up on the 26th of March in the Strand Hotel for the Cleaner Foundation. But, um, you know, I'm trying to explain to the people that work with me in the, in the charity what the Keith Duffy Foundation is going to do. And it, what it is going to do is going to do joint ventures with other charities and help other charities help themselves and get the awareness out there. And, you know, people saying, like, you know, Keith, you can't help everybody. You know, you just can't. And I said, maybe not, but we can bloody try. And that's what we do. We try to be the best that we can be. And these politicians are saying, I can't do it on my own, but try, do your little bit. If everybody done their own bit and stopped complaining about not being able to do it, then it would all come together very nicely. But it's getting somebody to make a difference. It's, get, it's going to take a, a minister or, or, or a politician to have a child with autism to understand what works and what needs and how simple it is, but it just needs to be put in place. You know, and, and unfortunately, as I said, it's going to take one of them to have a child or a grandchild with autism before they'll realise that, you know, in years gone past, the ignorance surrounding it is one thing um, and misdiagnosis is another thing. Um, but to be able to see that there's a form of intervention that given to the child at the right stage of their life can change their future, that can give them a life, help them survive in our society. Mm. And the flip side of the coin is if they don't receive that intervention, they could end up in, a, in an institute, sedated to a chair, institutionalised by the time they're 25. It's ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And that's the, that is simply the difference of having some sort of um, quality of life and surviving in society, holding down a job and possibly falling in love one day and having a partner to sitting in a chair sedated in, in some, you know, hospital or, or institute somewhere. Yeah. And that's crazy, you know. But even though you were very involved in autism, like you say, you're sort of you've spread out now and you want to you want to kind of help loads of different people. So the Keith Duffy Foundation is that is that uh, is what you'll do through that. That's that the Keith Duffy Foundation yeah. now is going to work with all different charities. Autism will always be very, very close to my heart. So we'll always um, we'll always have some sort of uh, fundraising done for autism depending on what it is we're trying to achieve um, but I'm open to other charities no it doesn't matter how big or small approaching the Keith Duffy Foundation telling me what they want to do why they want to do it and, and what they need and um, I, I'm going to try and get my team behind them whether it be in Dublin or Limerick or Kerry or Donegal mm -hmm. whatever in Ireland 
I'm going to try and spread ourselves out there. And, and I, c- I can't do everything, but we can do our own. We can do a little bit, you know. But apart from all that charity work, which is really great, um, what else, what other kind of ambitions do you have? Because you've done an awful lot. You're 41 or something now? 42 so this year. 42 yeah. in October. And mm-hmm. you've done an awful lot. Like, um, uh, you have achieved a, a great amount. But what is there left to achieve for you? Is so there much. Other I'm still so ambitious. It's unbelievable. I mean, what have I'm doing at the moment. Have you always been like that from no, an early age? No, is no, no. It, it was, as it was the older? success that boys own had made me realize that there's a whole world out there and there's so many opportunities out there that you can go out and try and grab a hold of them that might not work but it just made me believe in myself and believe that you know ambition is healthy and and don't ever you know don't ever think you can't do something you know what I mean there's always a way of doing it might be not the way you foresee but there's another way of doing it you know don't give up on your dreams is basically what I'm saying and what I wanted, there's so many things I want to do. I, I'm a big fan of all these American TV programs like Homeland and, and um, Breaking Bad and all these type of shows. Um, you know, The Good Wife even, or, or Grey's Anatomy, you know, yeah. if you're going to go a little bit soppier. Um, and I, I see characters in them that I can see myself playing and I'd enjoy playing. Um, Theatre is wonderful. And this particular show, John B. Keane, the character of Teddy Healy that I play, I'm, I, I like the character, I, I know him, I've suited to him, and I enjoy playing that character. Um, and I'm confident in my ability now, and I would love, I'd be, I'm very ambitious to, the, the movies, if they came in, would be great, but it's, it's more kind of the TV shows because you have a base, mm. you have a nine to five, per se, and I just like the routine of that. So are you pursuing that at the moment? I'm like if the if if um, auditions or if there's somebody casting and my, you know, shape and look, you know, kind of suits the character, I'll audition. I'll put myself on tape. I do it all the time, um, but it's it's a lottery, you know. It yeah. really is a lottery. I'm not known in in America, so I don't have that platform. Um, I have the platform in the UK, but sometimes that goes against me because the typecast of Kira McCarthy from Coronation Street or yeah, yeah. Keith Duffy from Boyzone or whatever, it can go against you. It doesn't go for you. Yeah. So I've, it's, it's tougher, you know, for casting directors to take a chance on me. But when they do, never, they never regret it. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, listen, the last time you were in the Irish Times was you were selling your house. How did that All right. go? Well, it, I didn't sell it. Okay. I took it off the market. Right. We decided to stay for another couple of years. Okay. Um, I'm involved in other businesses outside the entertainment business because yeah. I have to pay me bills like everybody else. And as much as I love theatre, it doesn't pay huge money, surprise, surprise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm involved in a development um, of houses Okay. Uh, that we were considering maybe taking one ourselves. And uh, because I based myself in Ireland, even though most of my work was away, uh, because it was important for my daughter's education. The, the, the um, intervention facility that we set up here was second to none, and she wouldn't have got that kind of attention anywhere else. So it was very important for her future, for us to be grounded in Dublin. My son wants to flee the nest. He wants to go to London. London would be an easier place for me to live, for work. Um, so we're undecided whether to sell the house and move to London, or sell the house and have a, just have a smaller house in Dublin and another house in London, we're kind of undecided, and Mia's got two years left in school. So we said, let's just leave everything the way it is for now. Your, your babies are leaving. I know. Do you need to have more babies now? Well, that's what I just said in an interview <laughs> last week, which I regretted saying, because the headline was, Duffy wants new babies. I was going, oh, my God, my How wife will kill me. You know? <laughs> you know, well, look, you know what? Um, you started young, didn't We you? started very young, and I was away a lot when the kids were babies. And I, I love kids, you know? Um, 
the older I'm getting, the better I am with them. I, I, I suppose I understand them better now. I suppose working with so many children with disabilities, you get you get an ability to be able to communicate with, with, with kids. And um, I get on great with all my mates' kids. Most of my mates have kids that are three, four, five. You know, my kids are grown up. Um, so yes, the, the, I, I do like the idea if if me and Jay flee the nest. It's going to be very <laughs> you, quiet at home. Yeah. And I just thought, a couple of new babies be nice. But my wife didn't agree. <laughs> no, I'd say she's probably grand for babies. You see, I, this all sounds great in theory, but, you know, like I said, I'd say on Saturday mornings now, I'll be going, I need a lion, you know? Yeah. We go out with our friends. We go home. If, our, if, if it's a late night, they're up at half seven with their kids. We don't get out of bed till half hour in the afternoon. God, our kids I, do their own thing, you know? That so lovely. Oh, we sit in the bed. We have <sighs> crackers, grapes, a little bit of curry chutney. Have you had curry chutney? is really nice oh. with cheese and crackers. And, uh, and a glass of red wine. And At we, half four in the morning, on in, a in Saturday. Bed, in the afternoon, in bed. See, watching, and we have all our, our American TV yeah. shows or whatever saved on our, our series link on, on the Skybox. And we just watch show after show. You know, the foe go, I'm dying. Ah, oh, no, I'm grand. <laughs> you know, I've had loads of sleep. And uh, <laughs> I've had a hair of the dog. I've had a little glass of wine, you know. Yeah, that sounds idyllic. Well, listen, whatever you end up doing, I wish you the best of luck. Um, everyone who I said I was coming to interview you just said, oh, I love him. He's a great oh, guy. Well, that's so nice I think you've gone from that thing where the kids on the street corners calling names. I don't yeah, think... Yeah, no, that's completely turned over now. I mean, I yeah. have to say, people on the street are very, very generous yeah. and kind to me now. And But I there's go... something about you that's very real and salt to the earth, without, to, to use that terrible like, cliche expression. But I think people do see you like that, like a just a true... Yeah, Dublin but I'm, I'm, aware of, I'm aware of where I need to be and where I want to be. I, don't, I, I, I work with people in this business that haven't got a clue who they are. Their ego is too big for them to be able to see themselves, how other people see them. They're deluded. They don't see what other people see. Yeah. So how can they um, how can they win over an audience if they see themselves in a different light than how they're actually mm. perceived by the general public? I, I have a very good kind of relationship with the general public because I am one of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like I was just thinking, academically you wouldn't have done loads. Like you would have got me young when you went to to boys. Yeah, aca- the, the whole academic side of things didn't suit me very well. No, but you. <laughs> I bet it sounds like to me that over the course of having a been exposed to so much on tour and all those things, you've obviously had an education that's been very useful and different. Yeah, to well, my, you like you asked the question earlier, which I don't think I got to answer about me or what has she done for me or how has she changed me and what she gave me was the ability to believe in myself as a person and. Um, because of my lack of academic education, I didn't really have a lot of confidence in that area. Um, I remember the first speech I gave at a fundraiser back in um, 2002, 2003 maybe. Um, I was um, and but and this and that. And Brendan O'Carroll was the MC, and he kept on trying to help me along. I got emotional and um, I, cu- I couldn't really explain myself. Um, to jump to now, I go and do lectures in colleges and, and, and I give speeches you know, for an hour and a half about autism and the education of children with autism and, and the whole thing. And I do it effortlessly and I don't write it down, I just speak completely from the heart. And I never would have given myself the ability to do that. Me, I've, me has given me the, 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 the confidence to be able to go out there and address a room and educate them on what I've learned. Um, uh, that's all, like I mean, I can one stage with boys on. I can have a laugh. I can talk to the audience, but it's all very kind of tongue in cheek, or you know, 
Um, but to stand up on stage and talk about something that's very close to your heart and be art articulate when you're doing it, it's it's something that I didn't think I had it in me. And, and because of my daughter, I've, I, I, I have an awful lot more respect for myself now than I did before. Yeah, that's a great tribute to her as well. And just before you go, couldn't talk to you without mentioning Stephen Gately. Yeah. Uh, obviously a big loss. In 2009, he died. And I suppose you, you would obviously still miss him. What are yeah, your kind seven of... seven years this year. Yeah. Um, and it's, you him. know, time is a great healer. You know, I miss him terrible every day, but there was a time I couldn't speak about him because I'd get too upset. Um, I, I don't get upset anymore, and I, and I don't feel guilty about that because um, I actually just smile because he was great fun, and I was delighted to be... If I do get teary-eyed now, it's out of happiness. It's not out of sadness, you know? Um, he was a great friend. He was a great character. It was a complete tragedy. He was he was at the happiest point of his life when he died. He was His career was flying. There was talks of him going into Jersey Boys, which was a dream job for him. And uh, he would have been a great Frankie Valli, I think. Um, I love Jersey Boys, the musical. So, uh, you know, it, it was just, it was so wrong on so many different levels that it was very hard to kind of comprehend at the time. So I had to just deal with one level at a time. And that took its time. That took yeah. a while. That took a few years. He died in October 2009. And March 2011 was when it, when it really hit me bad. And that's how long it took to really hit me bad. And I couldn't cope. And I went down a bad road for a while. And um, like, to be honest with you, I ended up in um, bereavement counseling uh, because I just, the crazy stuff was going on. Nightmares that you just, I couldn't even tell you about. They were horrific. And um, the, the bereavement counselor was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And like I say, now I smile, you know? I couldn't go to sleep. I, I didn't want to sleep because of the, the, the torment. Uh, and uh, now I sleep and, and he's in my dreams you know what I mean I wake up and you know I know he's gone he's passed he's at, he's at the next place but the dreams are great fun yeah. you know well I think you're a wonderful person the way you talk about a lot of different things and funnily enough um, that you kind of are, are very inspiring and you, you make people feel and think in a very deep way in a funny way because in another way you're not like that at all but I think you're a very deep person I think that's no idea what you just said <laughs> I, just, I don't really know what I just said I just think that when I'm listening to you and every time I hear you on the radio or hear you and anything I always get something from it I always go away thinking that was a very interesting oh, point that's or that's, that's made nice me think know. something so nice yeah and maybe it is coming from what you said like from your daughter and maybe it, it allowed you to tap into a deeper part of yourself yeah uh, well it, de it definitely work. did it's given me it's given me a completely different view on certain parts of my life and myself, which, which is welcomed. I, I like it, you know. And it's like I said to you earlier on, I, I know how we as a society function. And I know when I'm being honest and sincere. And I know when people are trying to create a false front, I can see right through it. And I'd hate to be classed in that category. So I try my best to keep it real, yeah. you know. And that's well, I think and, you, you know, are. I think there's an authenticity there that's like you yeah, can't and make that, up. that's very important for right. for me. Do you know what I mean? And some yeah. people in the business don't like the fact that I remain there. You know what I mean? And I let the secrets out of being in this business. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> there is no secrets. It's just keep it real. Yeah. Okay, well, Keith Duffy, continue with keeping it real. And I thank will. you very much for coming. You sound like a rapper now, just keep yeah, it real. Yeah, keep it real, Keith. Um, <laughs> in your lovely suit, it was lovely to see you, and hope you'll come back. I was in. actually in court. I came straight right. to court. Obviously, I got off. That's how I managed to make Come it in here. and talk to us again anytime. We'd thank you very you. much. It's okay. been lovely to be here. Thank you.